Hey, everybody, it's Martine. I am actually out today, but before we start the show, I just wanted to share a quick thank you. Today is exactly three years since we launched Post Reports, and for me and the many wonderful, hardworking people on this team, it has been such a privilege to bring you news and reporting every day. Whether you've been listening since the very first episode three years ago, or if you just started tuning in last week, we just want to thank you so much for giving us your time, your ears, your questions, your emails, your headspace, and your loyalty. We appreciate you so much. Now, on to the show. For more than 30 days this fall, student protests shook up one of the nation's most prestigious historically Black colleges. There's nothing illustrious about mold and housing. There is nothing illustrious about a dorm room flooding and Howard refusing, refusing to give back the money that they owe students. There's nothing illustrious about that. Howard is embarrassing Howard. And let's be very clear. Let's be very clear. Howard University students were protesting poor living conditions on campus. They reported mold, mice, roaches, water damage, no Wi-Fi, no heat or air conditioning. Sometimes requests to fix these issues went unanswered for weeks. Students at Howard University fed up with what they are calling unsafe living conditions. Student videos showing what appears to be pipes burst, insect infestations, and mold under beds and covering the walls. Coughing up blood. Like, I was coughing so bad I coughed up blood. Like, coughing for hours. Great. We now hold the record for the longest campus protest in Howard University history. And that's a weird flex. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Jordan Marie Smith, in for Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 3rd. Today, the inside story of what happened at Howard and what a private company has to do with it. Plus, what we know about the Omicron variant. While some of Howard's dorms felt unlivable, students started protesting and slept in literal tents on campus dozens of tents, for days. But these protesters were still taking classes and completing assignments. They were basically just trying to be normal college kids. So a day of would be waking up whenever you have your classes, going to classes in the tents, and then most people go back to their dorms if they do stay on campus to shower. Some people who stay off campus and live in the tents or live inside take kind of bird baths in the sinks. Chandler Robinson is an 18-year-old freshman from Delaware. She was also a student leader in the campus movement. But they turned the water off a couple of days ago, so that's been very difficult. Good afternoon. About a month ago, a group of students began the occupation of the Blackburn building. This is Wayne A.I. Frederick, the president of Howard University. Last month, he apologized to anyone who was, quote, inconvenienced. He also announced that the school and its students reached an agreement on housing and other issues. I am pleased to share with you today that through ongoing dialogue and a desire to hear and address their concerns, the student protesters have agreed to end the Blackburn occupation and leave the building. I also expect non-student protesters to depart the surrounding area and to end the occupation of the campus. But there's another big player when it comes to why there were less than ideal conditions in some of Howard's buildings. 
what a lot of schools do is they strike these private partnerships, which is what Howard did in 2016 with this company called Corbius. Lauren Lumpkin is an education reporter with The Post. She's been reporting on the relationship between Howard and Corvius. It's a private company that manages a reported 60% of housing at the university. This fall, thousands of people actually signed a petition asking the school to sever ties with Corvius. It's unknown what the relationship between this company and Howard will look like after everything that happened. But Howard's president did say they would be keeping a close eye on their partners. Of course, Howard is not the only school to enter a relationship like this. Tons of universities hire private companies to manage services like dining halls, dorms, and even custodial needs. But these partnerships can sometimes cause problems. Some students and experts say that private companies involved with schools only have money on the mind. The relationship that they have, it's Corvius, it's a private company, and Howard is a private university. So the terms of that contract, we are not clear. Um, It's private, so we don't really know. But based on the information that has been published, we do know that Corvius, in 2016, they signed on to finance, renovate, manage, operate, and maintain four of the university's residence halls. Um, And in the years since, that partnership has grown, and now Corvius is managing 60% over half of the housing on campus. These partnerships are not unique. They've actually become, you know, over the year is more and more common. A lot of schools, I think people who are in college now or were in college recently can, you know, kind of identify like, for example, food service workers or custodians and and people who housekeepers who clean the residence halls. Those are not always university employees. Even, you know, I went to American University and the university contracted those services out to different companies. And so it was common to see people on campus who, you know, did not work for directly for the university, but they were employees of another company who came to the school to perform a certain service. It can be difficult to hold these companies accountable because they are responsible to so many other people. Um, And if you talk to kind of the students at Howard, for example, they would argue that they were not a priority to Corvius at all. You know, they claimed that Corvius was more interested in, you know, making their shareholders and their investors happy. And then the students end up getting the short end of the stick because they would put in a, a maintenance request for mold or for a leak in their room. And it would not be dealt with. Weeks would go by before anyone came to check it out or someone would come to check it out, do a kind of a quick fix and then the problem would just come back in a couple of days. Did you happen to talk to anyone from Corvius about these complaints from students when it comes to housing? I'm, I'm wondering what they had to say. So I I did speak to a representative, a spokeswoman from Corvius, and she didn't comment specifically on the protests at Howard, but she did say that, you know, basically the students there and the families and community deserve the best and they're committed to ensuring safe housing for everyone on campus. Um, She also added that the rooms were inspected on a monthly basis and um, maintenance needs were identified and addressed. That was their official stance on the issues, but students obviously had their own experiences that they were all very, you know, vocal about. And the students that you spoke with at Howard, were they happy about how things got settled between administration at Howard and the students? I I wonder, are they content about that? Yeah, I, I think content would be the right word. 
as we know, the the university and the student organizers, they went through, you know, several days of negotiations. And at the end, whatever they agreed on, it's confidential. Really, the only people who were directly involved in those conversations know what was detailed in that agreement. So most of the Howard community, whether you're a student or you're an alumni or you're a parent, they don't really know what the university agreed to do. So I, I think the sense is that people are are happy because there was a resolution. These students who were sleeping outside could finally go back to their dorms and live, you know, somewhat of a normal life on campus. But there's still kind of this big question as to what is next. You know, the, the student organizers say that, you know, one of them said we won and that our demands were met and that we we're happy with the resolution. But still, without knowing what exactly the university agreed to do, it'll be difficult to hold them accountable. So, Lauren, the thing is, Howard is a historically black university. Does that complicate things when it comes to issues like funding? I mean, the funding works pretty, it's very similar across all institutions, whether they are predominantly white or historically black. Tuition, federal funding, state, local funding are all really important to these schools and their budgets, no matter kind of what their affiliation is. Um, But what we do know, which is kind of really interesting about the way these schools are funded, and this comes from data from the American Council on Education, is that public HBCUs rely on public, you know, federal and state funding more heavily than their non-HBCU counterparts. Um, And private HBCUs are also more tuition dependent than their non-HBCU counterparts. And when you look at HBCUs, I mean, these institutions have been around for a very long time, uh, more than 150 years. But if you look through their history, there is just kind of systemic underfunding that really starts with their founding. So to answer that question, I mean, the most direct answer would be systemic racism, but we kind of have to go back in time a little bit to when these institutions were founded. After the Civil War, um, a lot of Black people were advocating for higher education. And so you had a lot of philanthropists getting together and missionary groups and churches and just people coming together to create these institutions to educate Black students. And funding, you know, from the get-go was was a challenge. But in 1890, there was federal legislation passed to support Black schools. Um, It was called the Agricultural College Act of 1890, also known as the Second Moral Act. And basically what that did was they it added some um, other Black institutions at that time to the U.S. land grant system. And so basically what, what that did was was created a pathway for funding. The federal government would give these schools an appropriation, um, but the catch was that the states had to match that appropriation. Uh, what you saw, though, was like a lot of a lot of states just didn't do it. Some states just, just didn't match that money. So just from jump, a lot of these schools were just disadvantaged from the very beginning. And, you know, when you start behind, it's very hard to catch up. That's just one example. I mean, there's just, and then also over, through time, as these universities grew and as more Black people became interested in education and, and wanted to get educated at these institutions, still there were just always hurdles, um, you know, almost at every turn in terms of getting funding, getting adequate funding and, and closing those funding gaps between HBCUs and um, the other institutions in the country. What about alumni donations? Aren't there a lot of alums who can give back to HBCUs? Yeah, definitely. And HBCU alumni are some of the most proud alumni you'll ever meet. 
And I, a lot of them do give and they give in significant numbers. And I don't want to undermine that at all. But when you look at the data just across the board, we, we do know that graduates from HBCUs do not give at the same level as graduates from PWIs, predominantly white institutions. The straightforward answer to that, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of answers, but I, I think the most glaring um, and the one that's the hardest sometimes to confront is just the wealth gap between black families and white families. And so when it comes to discretionary spending and, and giving back to your alma mater, even if that is important to you, if there's a big wealth gap to begin with, maybe you don't have the same resources or not as many people have the same resources to give in significant numbers to their to their colleges. That kind of makes me even more curious about the idea of like how underfunding at HBCUs like Howard, like Spelman, like Morehouse, how does that affect the students? Universities are, I mean, really big, complex organizations. They have so many responsibilities. I mean, the, the first and most obvious one is to educate students, right? But they also need to maintain dorms. They need to um, recruit faculty. They need to provide student services. They need to pay their faculty. And all types of, I mean, just the realm of student services over the years has just exploded in terms of what schools are expected to provide for the students from safety to mental health services. I mean, they, they have to pay for so much. And when, I mean, very simply, you know, if you don't have the resources to do all that, then not all those bases are covered. And unfortunately, what you see um, a lot is that one of the first things to go is infrastructure. Um, a lot of schools, particularly at HBCUs, have just this backlog of, of infrastructure upgrades and, and modernization projects that just have to go by the wayside because they have other things that they need to do. They need to you know, make sure that they can recruit students and, and give scholarships and support the student body that they have. There was actually a report from the um, Government Accountability Office. Uh, this was from 2018. And it surveyed HBCUs and the, and the schools that responded said that there, you know, building spaces, they, so many areas on campus were just in desperate need of repair, but the funding to make those repairs just didn't exist. And that, you know, that that's a persistent problem at many schools. Lauren, in this conversation, we've talked a lot about the inequities, the systemic racism that leads to a lack of funding for HBCUs. And I'm wondering, are there any initiatives to fix these inequities? Yeah, so a, a big thing and, and something that a lot of presidents at HBCUs are watching is the, the Build Back Better agenda. There is a significant amount of money in there for not just HBCUs, but other minority serving institutions. And that money could make a huge difference. It could provide, you know, funding to upgrade labs and improve academic support services and give more financial aid to students who really need it. And there's also a, a larger push, and this comes up you know, every year, I feel like this is a, this is a conversation that's really always happening in higher ed, but about um, increasing funding for the Pell Grant. A ton of HBCU students receive um, federal Pell Grants, which are federal grants reserved for uh, students from low-income households. I think it's like 70% of HBCU students get these grants. And so, you know, if there was more money to dole out those resources, then more students could afford to come to these schools. Um, and more importantly, could, they could afford to stay at these schools, um, because that's also something that we see a lot of schools struggling with how to retain students that they actually graduate and can move on. I'm curious if other schools, even predominantly white schools, are dealing with similar problems because of contracts between their institution and another private company. 
Yeah, so I, I can speak specifically about um, some other issues that Corbius has run into. They face some backlash at the within the university system of Georgia. Basically, in the in the months after the pandemic first broke out, uh, and this university was trying to figure out how to move forward, some documents were revealed, and in those documents, um, some leaders within Corbius suggested to the university system that if they restricted the number of students per dorm room, um, that would not curb the spread of the coronavirus. So, so basically, suggesting that. Reducing the number of students who were living in the dorms wouldn't, you know, make the coronavirus spread any faster or make it spread. And the company instead suggested that schools limit their occupancy in public areas like elevators or lounges, but not necessarily in the dorm rooms. Um, and a similar message was sent to another Corby's partner, Wayne State University, which is in Detroit. So these relationships can be kind of difficult because there's always this question of who is, is this company accountable to? Who is their first priority? Is it the students? Is it their investors? Is it their shareholders? Depending on who you ask, you, you'll get a different answer. But I think kind of the, the pattern here is that this is a private company and, and profit is it's important to them. And sometimes student that can cause a lot of frustration, obviously, on campuses where students, you know, are paying a lot of money to be in a safe and, and healthy environment. And that's not, you know, if that's not the case, then there's obviously going to be a lot of frustration there. Lauren Lumpkin is an education reporter with The Post. I also reported and produced this story. After the break, the latest on the Omicron variant. Several cases have now shown up in the U.S., including in California and New York. We'll take a look at how the Biden administration is responding. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So Dan, it's been five days since you were last on the show and you were talking about Omicron. What's changed since then? There have been things that made me more worried about our current situation. There are things that have made me less worried. And then there are places where the jury is still out. Dan Diamond is a national health reporter with The Post. So in terms of what's made me more worried. There's data that shows Omicron appears to be reinfecting people who previously had infections at a much higher rate than earlier versions of the virus. So vulnerable people could be getting hit again 
And even if cases aren't always severe, it could lead to some crowding. And I'm also more worried in that cases have exploded in South Africa. Just a few weeks ago, there were only a couple hundred cases reported per day. Now there are as many as 11,000. Some of that may be because people are getting tested, they're worried about the Omicron variant, but even so, it suggests that Omicron really is moving quickly through that population. I think I'm, I'm less worried in that when Omicron has broken through and fully vaccinated people, the symptoms anecdotally so far have generally been mild. That suggests that even though Omicron does have mutations that may allow it to evade some protections from vaccines, it's not dodging all the protections that we develop. And then I think the jury is still out on how severe the symptoms will be, particularly if this virus variant ends up skewing younger. There's consistently been a delayed reaction every time there's a wave of coronavirus. We see cases go up and optimists say, well, hospitalizations haven't gone up. And then a few weeks later, the number of people in hospitals go up and the optimists say, well, deaths haven't gone up yet. And then deaths inevitably go up. So we are at a place where the world remains vulnerable to the virus. And I think it's too early to render a verdict on Omicron. So this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci announced the first case of Omicron in the U.S. The California and San Francisco Departments of Public Health and the CDC have confirmed that a recent case of COVID-19 among an individual in California was caused by the Omicron variant. That was Wednesday. Since then, we've found more cases. What exactly do we know about these so far? It's still early. But we are finding that these cases of Omicron were here. They were here before the travel ban was put into effect this week. The individual was a traveler who returned from South Africa on November the 22nd and tested positive on November the 29th. And as all of you know, because we've been discussing this, this, we knew that it was just a matter of time before the first case of Omicron would be detected in the United States. So these are people who in many cases had been abroad in South Africa, came back, even though they were fully vaccinated, they developed symptoms too, mild symptoms. But some of the cases don't have a connection to travel. These appear to be community spread. And whether it's in New York uh, City or the state of Hawaii, it appears that Omicron has already been here, though the world had a bit of a head start in, in picking this up simply because the scientists in Southern Africa were so good at sounding the alarm on the early side. That will mean that even though we are finding more cases of Omicron, it's probably not as widely seeded as, say, in March 2020, when the first cases of coronavirus were being reported, and then overnight it felt like they totally exploded. It doesn't feel like Omicron has gotten to that level yet. We may be on the early side. So, Dan, Biden made a speech this week about Omicron. What was in his speech? President Biden on Thursday spoke at the National Institutes of Health and laid out a laundry list of tactics to fight Omicron and the ongoing Delta variant. Today, I'm back to announce our action plan to battle COVID-19 this winter. Not that any of us are surprised any of you because it's the combined advice from all of you that we developed this plan. And it doesn't include shutdowns or lockdowns, but widespread vaccinations and boosters and testing and a lot more. Some of those tactics were new. The idea that there will be ad campaigns and engagement efforts to get more 
Americans, particularly seniors, to get booster shots. There might be ride shares that take seniors to the booster shot sites. There are going to be new family vaccination days. There's also a new focus on rapid testing. So that if you're one of the 150 million Americans with private health insurance, next month your plan will cover at-home tests. Now, for those not covered by private insurance, we're going to make available free tests at thousands of convenient locations, locations for folks to pick them up and take a test kit home. If you get a low-cost rapid test at, say, a local CVS or other pharmacy, you are supposed to be able to eventually reimburse that to have it at no cost. And those tests have been in hot demand. Some people have wanted them, but haven't wanted to fork out the money to get them. And then the idea that there will be more travel restrictions on people coming into the United States, that they will have to test within a day of their trip to make sure that they're not bringing coronavirus with them. This was seen as both the strongest plan that the White House has unveiled yet, but in the words of Eric Topol, a prominent researcher and doctor in California, this plan still doesn't go far enough. Can you tell me more about the travel restrictions put in place? So the U.S. and other countries did put travel restrictions on foreign nationals coming out of southern Africa. Eight nations there, South Africa, Botswana, nearby nations, where the Omicron variant had first been detected and announced. Now, it's possible the variant emerged somewhere completely different and someone brought it to southern Africa. But the argument that the Biden administration made especially because this seems to be a flip after last year. President Biden, Vice President Harris, and others said they didn't like the Trump travel restrictions. Their argument today is, look, we know that there's a lot of Omicron variant in these countries. We want to do our best to slow down the spread. If we need a few more days to get our defenses ready, the better is their argument. Now, the counter argument is those countries in Southern Africa need help. They need vaccines. The World Health Organization has argued that the travel restrictions are making it harder to get supplies to Southern Africa. So it's unfortunately a heartbreaking decision all the way around. There, there are so few big picture decisions in this pandemic fight that are clear. There are usually winners and losers, whether it's which countries are getting vaccines first or treatments first, or in this case, the travel restrictions that in theory, might slow the spread, though obviously not stop it if Omicron's already here, and then the people on the other side of that restriction who want help that might not be able to get there. So it sounds like the pandemic isn't going to end anytime soon. Well, I think you have to define what does it mean for the pandemic to be over? There was some hope that the Delta variant, this last big variant that swept through the U.S., I remember Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner a few months ago, saying he hoped that that was going to be the last big wave of coronavirus. And now we've got Omicron's potential threat. But even if Delta was the last big wave, just look at the data that the Washington Post has been tracking about the virus spread. There's still nearly 100,000 cases per day. There are still roughly 1,000 deaths per day linked to the virus. That is not a virus that is over. Now, it might be a virus that, for a lot of Americans, fades into the background if you're vaccinated, if your life has resumed. But there are plenty of people still being afflicted by it. Unfortunately, that is going to stay for some time, and especially in parts of the world that don't have the luxuries we do. The virus continues to be a major ongoing threat. The chance that a new variant would emerge beyond Omicron in three months, six months, 
that remains with us too. So it's frustrating to say that this is part of the new normal, but unfortunately, as a health reporter who's covered it and it's become part of my new normal, that's how I have, have mentally categorized it. Dan Diamond is a national health reporter with The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed and Renny Svarnovsky. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and me. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svarnovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Our engineer is Sean Carter. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. And I'm Jordan Marie Smith. Martine Powers will be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.